Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season three, episode three, and today we are going to be talking about Pride of the Yankees from 1942. This is uh, the 80-year anniversary of this film. As always, I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Zachary Ortz, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how you doing? Good. How about you, Zach? Good. I we are recording this. What day is today? February tenth, I think. And I am. It's right in that period where I just really start jonesing for baseball. I just <laughs> miss it so much. I miss the rhythm of being able to just look forward to a baseball game every single day. And so I'm. Yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit of baseball here. Excellent. Yeah, I am not as big of a fan of baseball, and so you know. This is a, 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 what would we call it, like a, a continuous uh, motif throughout our friendship is the discussion of baseball, you know, and it's, it's how much fun it is to watch as a sport and things like that. And now for the first time, we're recording part of that discussion. Exactly. Yeah. Very exciting. Why don't we talk a little bit about personal history for this movie? What's, did you, neither of us had seen it. So what, did you have any expectations or how much did you actually know about Lou Gehrig coming in? The only things that I knew about Lou Gehrig, I knew that he was a baseball player uh, and I knew that he had ALS and died of ALS. So that's all that I knew coming in. Lou Gehrig's disease is what this is generally known as. And or it was at the time period, and so I knew those things, and then the only other information that I had coming into it, I knew that it was a classic film from 1942, and that it, it, it had come out, like, right before Americans shipped off to Europe for World War II. So that was the extent of my knowledge coming into this film. Yeah, I, I figured you did not know a ton about Lou Gehrig. I knew quite a bit more about him, but I, yeah, I don't really want to talk about it because some of it is spoilers or spoilery for what is in or not in the movie. But yeah, I guess I, I didn't have a ton of expectations. I hadn't really thought about how I hadn't seen a biography that was this old. I mean, I, I haven't seen a ton of movies that are this old, but this is from 1942, which is the same year as Casablanca. Casablanca? Um, so I sort of... And I knew that this was a well-regarded film, so I kind of expected it to be... I didn't expect it to be on the level of Casablanca, but that was sort of the expectations I had going in, which I think were probably too high of expectations yeah i didn't expect it to be anywhere near that good i kind of i've seen probably a lot more movies from the time period and so i had i did not have super high expectations for the film as it compares to films nowadays but i do know i did know that it had won 10 or not one it was nominated for 10 academy awards Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I had kind of an expectation of the quality of the film. And I, th- I think even then my expectations were a little bit too high. So my, my expectations were a bit lower than yours and still probably uh, hit a little bit too high for this one. 
Yeah, it makes sense. So this is only... I, it's possible I'm missing some on my list, but I think this is only the third movie I've seen from this year. It's just Casablanca, Bambi, and now Pride of the Yankees. So re- really not a lot for me. For sure. And as you said, I haven't seen a lot of a lot of biopics, uh, biographical pictures from from that are this old. So that was really fascinating to see the way that they were approaching telling the life of a of a real person and the history of the biographical pictures is quite extensive there's a lot of them before this i just hadn't seen a lot at this point besides you know uh citizen kane which is not a biopic but is a biopic and so besides that one i didn't really have a good sense of of what it would be like yeah All right, let's talk a little bit about the time period here. So this movie was released July 14th, 1942. And the, I mean, there's just no, there's nothing really to talk about. I mean, not nothing to talk about, but the cloud that just looms over 1942, of course, is World War II. And I was, Matt and I were joking before when you scroll through that Wikipedia page of, major events from 1942 it's just like everything is world war ii it's just like january the nazis yeah. were horrible february the nazis were getting worse march oh look the nazis are continuing to get even even worse it's, it's a just, long page too it it is scrolling through years there, there's so many events and it's all world war ii stuff and it's i mean anything else that pops up on the page just gets drowned on a sea of like all the different things that were happening with world war ii yeah and i don't know that any of the world war ii events are like specifically all that any of those granular events are specifically all that relevant to the film but i think what is relevant is just that it's a film that was released in a period of war and it's a very upbeat film for a film that is essentially about a, a hero an american hero um at least that's the film's point of view on lou gehrig who ends up dying and dying at the end of the film and dying way too young and having his career cut short because of it yeah and in- you know, at the time period, I, I was thinking as I watched this one that uh, one way to think of it is kind of as a propaganda piece, even. It kind of is, yeah. Yeah, it feels like it. And, the, you know, the one piece that I read was talking about how this was one of the last big pictures that was released and in movie theaters before soldiers shipped out to Europe. Um, Mm. So, like, if you were a soldier who got drafted in June, the month before this came out, and then sent over in August, the month after this came came out, over to England and Europe for Operation Torch, this would have been the last movie that you saw before you went to the war. And for that context you know, shaped a lot of the way that I was thinking of this film because of that. Yeah, that makes sense. So just to place a few major World War II events here, December 7th, 1941. So what is that? Like eight months before this film comes out was the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
And then several months after November 8th, 1942, was when U.S. troops entered Operation Torch. Yes. And a few other things that I... The the only things that really jumped out at me from the World War II, the litany of World War II events that were cataloged on this page, was in June of 1942, was when Anne Frank made her first entry into her journal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh jeez. Which, I mean, obviously no one in the States knew that or was thinking of that, but it was just like... I mean, I grew up Jewish, you know, and I am Jewish and was raised Jewish. And so reading Anne Frank's diary was uh, something that was important. It was a big part of my childhood. And so it was just like, oh, right. Right, (laughs) Sometimes it's easy to forget that it was, even though the whole thing is that it was a real thing that actually happened, like placing it in a time and around other things is removes it from that horrible fantasy in a way yeah and it 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 grounds it in a in a different way because like this is a classic era of baseball you know one of the one of the really important eras of baseball and but it also ties in so closely with these horrible events that are happening in europe and uh, i think sometimes for me when I'm able to place those kinds of things on the timeline next to each other, it helps me like understand how real those events are because in my life as I experience it today, there's all kinds of things constantly going on. There's terrible things, but also, you know, there's like movies that come out that I want to watch or whatever it might be. And so placing those things next to each other helps me kind of contextualize the information. Yeah, exactly. Until you think of those things that everything just sort of lives siloed in your brain right at least for me you know a few other oh a few other dates that are important here so june 2nd 1941 so we're talking 13 months before this movie was released was when lou gehrig died so we were trying to look up when this movie went into production and it's not really clear that all it really says is 1941 so unknown if they went into pre-production after Lou Gehrig had died or whether it it had happened before I don't know that it matters a ton it they put this movie together very quickly and there was some urgency I think to tell the story of this baseball player of this person who a lot of people loved and respected. Yeah, and I I really did try to find that information. I had I did read the answer somewhere. Oh, you did? Yeah, I'm, I know I read it, but I didn't write it down immediately in my notes. And so I can't remember. And my brain is, you know, flipping back and forth whether it started right before he died or uh, right afterwards, but it was pretty close to that. I know that his widow was very heavily involved in the production of the film and the idea of the film from the beginning was to write it with him as a portrait of a hero. So -hmm. there was never any goal with this to write it as like, you know, one of these uh, complex character pieces that picks apart somebody's life and the, the good things and the foibles and the flaws and the bad things. That wasn't the goal. The goal of this was to celebrate, you know, this person that was, 
one of the most famous people in the U.S. and one of the most beloved figures in the U.S. at the time period and represent, you know, the what he meant to to people, especially as they were kind of shipping off to war. Yeah, and I actually don't necessarily, based on the timeline for this, I don't necessarily really have a problem with them doing it from that angle. I think it would have been, I mean, hey, if he was like a horrible murderer, then it's, you know, a different story. Or maybe maybe you uncovered some stuff that I didn't find that the movie should have gone into. We can talk about that later. But I understand wanting to do a hero piece for someone who's had a tragic death and having if you're releasing it 13 months just over a year after they died for sure yeah it's a and sorry there's a motorcycle that just went back (laughs) so much noise right as i went to talk (laughs) um uh, yeah and i i get putting it out it probably would have been a bit tasteless not to put together the film that way um the only thing is that you know, you'd think it would have an impact on the on the way that people might view a film like this in the future and the way it holds up historically. Um, I tend to see yeah. that when I see, you know, films that are kind of puff, puff pieces that come out. But this film is still super well regarded and ends up on a lot of people's lists of like the bet, the top 10 sports movies of all time. So maybe I'm just wrong about that. And it, uh, people just people just really love this film. Interesting. Yeah, we, we can get into some of that as we talk a little spoilers later. I didn't have a ton of other stuff for history that I wanted to talk about. I did want to mention, um, so ALS was not really well known or popular in, I guess popular is a weird word to use for a deadly disease, but it wasn't well known in the United States until Lou Gehrig contracted it and died of it or do you contract it if it's contract is probably the wrong word but until Lou Gehrig was diagnosed and died of it and for a long time in the United States it was colloquially known as Lou Gehrig's disease but the it looks like the first descriptions of it date back to 1824 and then it was finally named as ALS which stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis in 1874 And then it would reach further popularity in the States in 1963 when Stephen Hawking was diagnosed with it. Yeah, it's a... And it's a disease, I think, because you've had these two figures that are famous figures with the disease. I think it's... And for other reasons as well, it's a very tragic and uh, difficult disease to deal with. And it has such a big impact on people's lives. But I think all those factors combined to make it one that I had heard a lot beforehand. You know, I remember the ice bucket challenges for ALS um, and things like that. So, and I only bring that up for reference of uh, that. It's, it's a disease that I think there's a lot of diseases that people just aren't as familiar with. And I think this one, people have kind of an idea of it, though probably skewed by their perception of the figures of Lou Gehrig and Stephen Hawking. Yeah, I mean, I think it's most people know of it, but it's still wildly, at least my understanding, wildly underfunded the research into it. And it's, um, you know, I listen to a lot of baseball podcasts and they're, it comes up a lot funding for it and people vying for it and just trying to 
I, I think it's something that we've made discoveries about. I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't understand any of this, but I think there's a feeling that there is more to know and more that could be done preventively or to help people who are diagnosed with ALS, and there just hasn't been enough money poured into the studying of it. And I think that's true for a lot of different diseases. <laughs> There's yeah. just never enough money or, well, the money isn't ever being allocated to it in in the right way. Right. It, it's always a struggle. So that's really happy. Welcome to Stream It, the happy <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah. So... But uh, but you know one of the things that I, that's interesting is that this film is a very happy and upbeat film. Just in case anyone's is. you know thinking, wow, that sure sounds like a downer. It's not. It's a. It is. It's not shot that way. It's not intended to be viewed that way. I mean, it is. There's a little bit of tearjerker stuff to it, but like it's a it's a fun, you know, little. I guess you could call it like a romantic comedy. A little bit? Yeah, it's, a lot of places have it listed as romantic comedy. I think it's intended to be an inspirational film. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. Yeah. I had just a couple things on baseball to place us in this time period. So obviously this was a different period of time <laughs> for baseball. It was Baseball was undergoing a revolution by Babe Ruth and learning to <laughs> that people could actually hit a ton of home <laughs> runs uh he was called the sultan of swat and the so mlb from 1915 until 1961 was 16 teams and obviously now it's 30 and then in 1961 would begin the expansion i think it was 18 teams the year in 1961 and then maybe 20 after that and I don't really know the history of all the expansion from there, but this period of time where it was the 16 teams lasted for, what is that, like almost 50 years? And then on baseball was, I think, gained a lot of popularity because it's a very good radio sport. Mm -hmm. It's There's a lot of downtime there's a lot of time where you can easily describe what is happening so it was a huge radio sport for almost 50 years and that but may 17th 1939 was the first televised baseball game so that's three years before this movie comes out but it also happens smack dab in the middle of when this movie takes place so people would have been thinking of that thinking of that differently and and the way that you watch sports is kind of this is one of the things when we get into the reaction we can talk about that but you can tell that they have not televised a lot of sports when you watch this film Mm -hmm. so uh which is kind of interesting it's a as you said baseball as a radio sport is i think uh, a particularly important thing to understand about it that's how usually when i'm teaching this period of time in my english classes uh, one of the things I talk about with baseball and the rise of radio and things like that is a particularly important thing because it's hard to imagine, like, out of the sports, the people, like, big sports nowadays, a better sport for radio than baseball. It's kind yeah. of perfectly suited for the for the medium. Yeah, absolutely. Do you... Oh, I did want to say about the time period. So the, this movie is number six on the highest grossing films of 1942. And I was somewhat surprised that Casablanca did not 
show up on this list, but it does show up on the list for 1943 because it was released pretty late in the year oh, in November. Sense, yeah. So, yeah. So it probably just hadn't had enough time to make enough money. Yeah, exactly. The number one film of that year in the box office, uh, though I think it was released just before 1942, was Mrs. Miniver, which also stars Teresa Wright from this film. Um, yes, it does. And Mrs. Miniver is a film about World War II. It's about a, a British housewife that's in London during the Blitz and then all of those kinds of things. And it's uh, I've not seen the entire film, but I have seen a bit of the film. And it, it's a good one. And she does an excellent job in it. And so, you know, it's it's interesting to see from the time period. Yeah, let's let's use that as a little bit of a segue to talk about our personnel here, because Teresa Wright is one of the people I wanted to talk about. She's our leading lady in this film. She plays opposite Gary Cooper, and she did get an Oscar nomination for this film, but it's only her third movie. So as you had said, Mrs. Miniver was her second film, and then right before that, she was preceded by The Little Foxes. And Well, not only that, she was nominated for an Oscar in all three of those movies. Oh, really? And she won for Mrs. Miniver. What an unreal start to a career. <laughs> it's just wild. So her first three movies she ever did, she was nominated for an Oscar for all three of them, one on the second one. It's just... <laughs> and she's excellent in this film. You, you, can, you can understand why. She is just... There is this kind of change in the way films were being made in the time period. Uh, not being made, but the way that people thought of the camera and the way that you use the camera and the use of like close-ups and mid shots were was kind of being developed in a different way at this time period and Teresa Wright is just made for that kind of uh, transition her face is very expressive and it it just fits it's a she has a great face for close-ups and so it, she just is i was very impressed with her performance that was my favorite part of the film was teresa wright in this one yeah i completely agree i feel like i feel like maybe we're being a little bit of broken records because it's been a lot of films where <laughs> where i feel like i've said that the the female lead is the one who the entire movie hinges on but that's how i really felt this time as well like I just can't imagine this movie even coming close to working without her charm. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, Gary Cooper does a, a, a pretty good performance here, but I think Teresa Wright elevates every scene that she's in, and all I wanted to do mm-hmm. was see her more on camera. Whenever she wasn't there, I was like, Where she, when's she coming back? That's I just want to see her <laughs> on screen again. She was so good. Yeah, she was. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Gary Cooper, because... Gary Cooper is Gary Cooper. <laughs> this is this is actually I think the first Gary Cooper movie I've seen, so I'm not Same for me. super acquainted with Oh, it is for yeah. you as well. Yeah, we're we're doing this one which is pretty late in his career and then we're going to go 10 years later for our next movie we're going to watch High Noon. So we'll we'll get a get a pair of Gary Cooper movies here back to back. But his so his first talking movie, his first talkie was The Virginian in 1929. And this movie, Pride of the Yankees, was 41 movies later. So he just worked like a madman. And a lot of those movies were 
pretty successful in I just pulled a few to talk about in 1932 he did farewell to arms in 1936 he did desire and then also Mr. Deeds goes to town for which he received an Oscar nomination and then in 1941 Sergeant York which he won an Oscar for his first Oscar win maybe his only Oscar win no I think he won again and then in 1942 he was nominated for this film as well Pride of the Yankees yeah, and one of the things about Gary Cooper is that he, the period of time where the Pride of the Yankees comes out, he's going through like a reinvention of himself and his image. Mm-hmm. When he had started out, he was he did westerns. He was a cowboy, and he started out as a stunt writer, and then worked his way on to being a leading man. In I mean, it's all cowboy films. Everything's westerns that he starts out in. All these silent mm-hmm. pictures and all of this stuff up through the Virginian. And at the time period, he was like basically the biggest star in Hollywood when The Pride of the Yankees came out. And so, you know, they really wanted him to portray the part. The other thing, though, that's fascinating about Gary Cooper is all these westerns that he did. He was very pretty in them. Like... He has eyeliner on and, Mm. like, is heavily made up. And he's not gritty like a John Wayne or a Clint Eastwood kind of thing. He is a glamorous cowboy. And then... Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so then with Mr. Deeds up through Pride of the Yankees, he's getting older and he's not as pretty anymore. And so he had to kind of reinvent his image as being, like, this... What's the word for this? Like this, this, like American Joe kind of like regular down to earth guy that you'd want to get a beer with kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of fits in with this image. And then he goes through a third approach to his character, which we'll see when we get to high noon. We can talk about that, that then. But so he's reinventing his image throughout this. And this is kind of the tail end of his image reinvention. But... It's kind of fascinating to think of it that way. Yeah, it's worth noting that doesn't... I don't know that that's necessarily set in stone for everyone. Like, that's... It it takes a lot of work to reinvent yourself if you got famous for something. And to really be able to transition your career... I I think it's clear in this movie he's got great chops. And, you know, I didn't like him as much as Teresa Wright. But the two of them are really what this movie hinges on for sure it's a and and he's a good performer i think his his scenes are he's he does a lot of really interesting choices and i think nearly all of the choices he makes work worked really well for me he just you kind of you kind of just loved the portrayal of lou gehrig and you're like oh he's just you know He's just a backward hick of a guy that's just trying to work hard. And, you know, it's uh, the the performance was endearing. Yeah. Did you read that he was not a baseball fan before he was? I did. He 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 basically didn't know baseball. He hadn't even swung a bat. Yeah. Well, not only that, he's playing Lou Gehrig and Lou Gehrig is left handed and he's right handed. (laughs) So one of the big things they had to do was he had to learn to swing. Uh, left-handed and there's this myth that goes around that they shot him that they put him in a backwards uniform and then shot the scenes and then reversed them but that is not true though it it did happen in one scene they did that and it's where he has to do like a kind of a difficult catch and they tried to have him do it and he it was just too difficult for him to pull off 
left-handed, so they put him in a backwards uniform and filmed it. But everything else he does in the film, he hits the ball, he does all of those scenes, and he does it left-handed, which, I don't know, that's impressive to me. Yeah, I think he's also pretty passable as Lou Gehrig. Like, I think... He kind of looks like him. I mean, I don't... Like, side-by-side pictures. It's hard for me to tell because, you know, (laughs) of my weird brain affliction, but... To me, he looks like him. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there. I was looking up pictures, and there were occasionally places where I couldn't tell if it was a picture of Gary Cooper or if it was a picture of Lou Gehrig. You can tell most of the time, but you know, it's it's yeah. getting from the right angle, and it's hard to tell. Yeah. Did Did you have more stuff you wanted to say about Gary I Cooper? I did. One of the most interesting things about Gary Cooper, and he probably would not agree with the way that I would phrase this statement. Um, (laughs) But uh, Gary Cooper would probably be labeled as bisexual now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he had a boyfriend that he lived with for, like, multiple years. um, And it was just known that they were were a couple. In one case, they were at a nude beach together, and they were making out, and the press got pictures of it, and they blackmailed him into hiding the pictures. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, like pretty clearly bisexual. And and he'd also had some affairs with uh, other folks. One of his films where he kind of came to prominence was the film Wings, which was directed by Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, also a famous bisexual icon from the time period. So there's uh, a lot of evidence that they may have had a relationship while that film was being made as well. <laughs> but... Also, he was a bit homophobic and uh, a bit conservative, and so he probably would object to being characterized in that way. And if he were alive now, I don't think he would identify that way. Like, I don't think he would choose to identify with that term, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So, but it's it's interesting, and I think it's valid context for for Gary Cooper, the actor. Uh, I don't know that it really comes up very much in this film, but... Uh, I do find it interesting. No, I mean, if if Streamit isn't going to spread the bisexual gospel of Gary Cooper, I don't know who else will. <laughs> For sure. Who else did you have on your on your list that you wanted to talk about? So the other guy to talk about is Herman J. Mankiewicz, the screenwriter for this film. Mm-hmm. He is a prolific screenwriter. You may be familiar with his work on the films citizen kane and the wizard of oz never heard of it never heard of it never heard of him that's you know impressive so just an incredible screenwriter uh there was a film that came out a couple years ago that was produced by or um it was distributed by netflix called mank which was about him and the process of writing uh citizen kane so if you want to learn a lot more about the about herman mankiewicz you can see that and He's uncredited on The Wizard of Oz, but he basically, like, wrote The Wizard of Oz. There were a bunch of people that put it in, and he put together, like, 70 pages of it. But they brought in (laughs) 10 different people to write different treatments of it, and they didn't tell the different screenwriters that each of them was, like, competing against each other as they were writing it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so, but a lot of what's in the film, the final, what's on the screen, is his, especially basically everything that happens in Kansas, is written by Herman Mankiewicz. Um, But, yeah, he wrote this one, and there isn't a lot of detail on his process for writing Pride of the Yankees. 
it's a lot different. And this is the thing is that Citizen Kane definitely is a biographical picture, even though it's the character is ostensibly fictional. But that one is very critical of its subject, whereas this one is not at all. And so seeing those two films opposite each other and getting an idea of like, you know, Herman Mankiewicz had a lot higher opinion of one of these men than the other one. Uh, and you can tell it from the way he wrote the story. Yeah, well, uh, there, there's a lot of interesting writing choices in this film that we'll, we'll talk about as we get into the scene. So that'll, that'll be kind of fun. I don't have him on this list, but I, I did remember that I wanted to talk about there's an opening like epigraph or intro to this film that I don't know if you noticed this, but it was written by Damon Runyon. Is that a name that means anything to it you? It's not, no. Mm. Yeah, I didn't think it would be, but it's someone that I am pretty familiar with. He was a very prolific and very famous baseball writer from the, among other things, from the, I believe, the 30s and 40s, maybe a little earlier as well. And I had gone back and read a lot of his writing because he's also the person who wrote the two stories that the musical Guys and Dolls is based on. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'll... I'll try and find some uh, links to some of his writing that I'll I'll put in the show notes because some of it is very funny. And I think he wrote one column that was like from the point of view of a baseball. Mm. And it I, a lot of times he is credited with the rise in popularity of baseball because of how evocative his writing was. That makes sense, yeah. And he probably... I don't know where he wrote for at the time period, but probably either Pulitzer or Hearst. And then so, you know, like a household name. He was probably like the baseball columnist uh, at the time period, I assume. Yeah, I I believe he was. It's been I, I read a lot about him when I was doing Guys and Dolls in college and researching. And I started to read like a biography about him. But that was over a decade ago now. So for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about... But our our last segment here, which is advice or insight for first time viewers, and I'll go first here because this is I mean, this is only the third movie since we've instituted our little new format and had this segment, but it's the first one where I don't know that I would necessarily recommend this movie to everyone, unfortunately. For sure. Yeah. So I think what I'd rather do is tell you what, if you are interested in, would make you like this movie. So I think if you're interested in seeing how they did a biopic from 80 years ago, then I think you should watch this. And if you're interested in seeing really stellar performances from Gary Cooper and Teresa Wright, then this will be good for you to watch and yeah that's that's all i really have here i i don't know that there's a ton of other context i can give people to help them enjoy this movie although i will i will give you this little bit of trivia which is there are so the rules to get into the baseball hall of fame are that you have to have played for 10 years and be retired for five years, played for at least 10 years, and then been retired for five years. 
And there are two times where they have broken that rule, where they've instituted a player before their five years of retirement are up. And one of them was for Lou Gehrig. They inducted him into the Hall of Fame in 1939, which so he was able to get inducted before he died, which is really nice, I think. And then you don't, do you know the other one, Maddie? I'm guessing. I no. don't know. Yeah, so the other one was Roberto Clemente, who was a famous Pittsburgh Pirate and uh, all-star, and he he died bringing, flying his plane, bringing food to earthquake victims, and in the middle of his career, so he didn't, his career was cut short. It's horrible, and a story that I'm pretty well acquainted with, because my dad was a Pittsburgh a Pittsburgh Pirates fan at the time, and Roberto Clemente was one of his heroes. So I guess I said a fun trivia, but it's not really a very fun trivia. It's pretty it? sad, yeah, but but it's, no. <laughs> I mean, it's good trivia to have and to get a, you know, the impact that Lou Gehrig had on baseball. You know, I, I think that's important context to go into the film. So if you're tr- wanting to get that context, I think that's a good selling point on this film. Do you have anything I have two that you can offer up here? So the first one that I would say is if you're interested in like the history of sports films as a genre, yeah. this is kind of one of the earliest ones. You have a few other films about like cricket and golf and things like that before before this film, but this is kind of the beginning of the sports movie as a genre. Um, and so if you've enjoyed things like, you know, Remember the Titans or Rudy or, you know, all that kind of stuff. This one's good to, to watch for that history. The other Yeah, one... that's a great point. I wish I kind of wish I had known that or thought about that. Sort of similar to viewing North by Northwest yeah. as the first modern action film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that I would say is a reason not to watch it. Uh-oh. Yeah. There is a bit like quite a bit of casual racism in this film that I found pretty uncomfortable the way that they there's a scene in particular with a black waiter that yeah. I found really uh, just really problematic. So that's the <laughs> that's my other point on that one. Yeah, I don't even think it was anything they would have even thought about unfortunately it's just it's so casual in the way that the racism in this film it's not showing moments of like blatant racism that people at the time period would like it's not trying to depict them as moments of blatant racism but is looking at it from awareness they're just not aware of it and i don't think they realize that's what they were doing but looking back you see it and like the these scenes are wrong they were wrong at the time period and the way that they deal with this but it really does just drive home the treatment of black people in america at the time period and there's only a few scenes that have black people in the film but every basically every single one of them is a problem and so you know that's one reason why why you might not want to watch that film yeah, and for context, if anyone is wondering, uh, 1947 was the year that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. So b- baseball would not be 
integrated for another five years, which I mostly mentioned just in case people are curious. It's not like, <laughs> obviously, racism stopped in 1947 or racism in baseball stopped in 1947. I would argue that it's continued to now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it is, that it has, so. Yeah. So with that happy news, let's take a break. Sounds good. first with your reaction because I I have a rather I I have a lot of stuff that I before our new format I probably would have mentioned in the first part of this movie but I didn't really want to spoil a lot of it so why don't you go first and then I'll do some of my stuff yeah so I sat down to watch this one and my parents had come to visit for the first time in like a month because we had had family members test positive for COVID, so we couldn't see them for a month. So they came over and visit, and we normally... But everyone's good now, right? Everyone's good, yes. Uh, nobody, yeah, I just don't want people to worry. <laughs> nobody's, nobody is still sick. Everybody's good. Nobody was, has any kind of long-term symptoms, anything like that. But so they came over to visit, and we had all of last year, we had kind of done this thing where we watched all the Marvel movies together. So when they came over this mm-hmm. time, they were like, what should we watch? And we couldn't figure out what to watch. And so I said, you know, I got to watch this movie for the podcast. So if you guys want to watch it with me, we can watch it. Want to do my homework with me? Exactly. Which really enhanced my viewing of the movie a lot because my dad got really into it. Oh, Yeah, cool. he really, really liked it. My dad loves old movies. So if I were to say like, one of the biggest reasons for me why I love watching film and why I like would want to do a podcast in the first place is just watching movies with my dad because he is a weirdo that will watch anything. Just like doesn't matter. It does not have to be good. He does not care. He would regularly just go and buy like Walmart bargain bin movies and bring them home and we would watch them and they were terrible and you know doesn't matter he loved them and so I got a lot of experience watching these films and this is why I've seen so many and he introduced me to a lot of classic films as well so introducing my dad to a classic film that he hadn't seen before that he really connected with because you know he's of an older generation it's it's a film that i think is built to appeal to to his kinds of sensibilities in in a lot of ways 
that was a really interesting experience, and I don't think I would have enjoyed it nearly as much as I did without that, uh, because there were a lot of things that kind of brought me out of it, but then my dad's reactions and my mom's reactions as well kind of brought me back in, so that was a lot of fun. The rest of the family did not enjoy it, and they, you know, like, 15 minutes in went and played video games so <laughs> uh, so out, yeah Dad. so that was my experience watching it overall i enjoyed it but i don't think that i have it ranked uh, particularly high i don't think i'd really have much desire to go back and watch it again but i was glad to have seen it and it contextually and the history that the film has that was worth it to me yeah absolutely i have pretty much the the same reaction I did not you know I asked Mara if she wanted to watch it with me and she sort of hemmed and hawed because it's one she hasn't seen but then when it came to it she chose not to and I was glad she chose not to because I don't think she would have enjoyed it but I'm glad I watched it I mean as I've said I love baseball and so it's widely regarded as one of the top tier at least one of the most important baseball films of all time and it has one of the most famous moments in baseball history or at least tangential to baseball history in it and so I'm really glad to have seen it because of that and I was happy to see Gary Cooper and Teresa Wright as we've already said but I think what was well let me ask you so how Based, based on your impression of the movie, how good a baseball player do you think Lou Gehrig was? And so for reference, there have been almost 20,000 Major League Baseball players to date, 19,969. So do you think Lou Gehrig is top five, top 10, Top 50, top 100, top 250, or top 1,000? I have absolutely no idea. I, I think this film gives you completely no context for figuring that out. The only thing I know is that he his record for how many games he played consecutively stood for like almost forever, and then he's still in second place and clears the next one by like 600 places. I know this because my dad looked it up after the film and and as we were chatting about it. so But otherwise, I have no way to contextualize how good he was or not. Interesting. Yeah. So the, yeah, it, it is worth knowing that his iron... Iron Man or Iron Horse, I think was his um, his nickname. That streak is very famous. That is something that most baseball fans know was his record until it was broken by Cal Ripken Jr. in whatever year that was. That was sometime in the mid nineties, I think ninety three, something like that. Yeah, and it was it was a record that was considered to be unbreakable. The, the, no one thought that anyone would ever break it again, and. To be honest, based on the stories, I'm not sure that Cal Ripken should have broken it. And I think the way he broke it was a lot different than Lou Gehrig's. You know, I haven't gone through to see if Lou Gehrig played every inning of every game, but there were some games where Cal Ripken should probably not have been playing, but still played to keep his keep, keep his streak alive. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. So baseball has this very handy metric called wins above replacement. And 
it's exactly what you think it is. It's a <laughs> advanced baseball number that, unlike some of the normal ones, you know, batting average, number of home runs, number of hits, the, there isn't really an easy way to explain how they come up with the number, especially because it's always changing. But it's very easy to understand what the number means, which is based on the years, the year that it's referring to, how many additional wins did you bring your team versus a comparable player versus the average player in your position? So baseball has a number. There are competing numbers. There are, baseball reference has its own version of war. Fangraphs has its own version of war. You probably can guess the number one player of all time in terms of wins above replacement. It's someone who's in this movie. Babe Ruth? It is Babe Ruth, yes. Look at that. Exactly. We got it. Yeah, you did get it. I mean, and you, you gave me the, the very soft pitch, and I still was hesitant as I hit it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, Babe Ruth. And so I'm just looking at wins above replacement war here. And he, he has a staggering 183.1. There are only 31 players in baseball history who have baseball reference war above 100. Lou Gehrig is number 18. Okay, yeah. 113.7. And so that includes pitchers. If you hop over to Fangraphs War, which has a an easier way to sort by pitchers versus hitters, he's the 12th best hitter of all time, at least according oh, wow. to Fangraphs War. And this is one of the things that surprised me about this movie was it did and it's possible I guess that they didn't know at the time quite how good he was going to be like they didn't know that 80 years later he was still going to be the 12th best player of all time but for his time period he was like the first or second best player of all time because the thing the thing is Babe Ruth War is a cumulative stat, so it's a counting stat. Every year that you play, as long as you are above replacement level, your wins above replacement will continue to go up. Babe Ruth played for 22 seasons. Lou Gehrig only played for 17 because, oh, wow. yeah. he, because he got ALS at the, I think, in his age 36 season. Like, he lost out on at least probably five years of playing baseball and he would have he wouldn't have been as good he would have you know age comes for all of us but he still would have been able to increase that total well and i mean on that same note for somebody that historically was known for being so consistent over such a long period of time you can only imagine yeah. that without the disease that if he'd kept playing that he would have maintained a very high level of play throughout that time period as well I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does make sense. I mean, it's baseball's weird. It's it's not uncommon for players to just drop off a cliff. Yeah. And there isn't people are still trying to figure out how to predict it now and you know, baseball teams have a lot of money and <laughs> a lot of money into predicting those things. I'm sure they're far better at it than lay people like me understand, but it's it's hard to do and it's hard to know when that's going to happen because there are also players who seem to somehow peak 
at age 35. Yep. It's like they're nobody's before that. And then all of a sudden they're like a top 10, 15, 20 player in the league or top 10, 15, 20 hitter in the league for four years. Just wild. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that this movie does no uh, work at contextualizing that though. Yeah. And I get that. I get that understanding like how good he was in terms of those numbers is a little hard to get across, but there are a couple things that I think the movie could have explained a little better. So one of them is when Lou Gehrig got famous, he was, or when he was starting to get noticed, he was noticed and because of the prodigious length of his home runs like there are Mm. stories of him hitting a ball 450 feet and this is just not something that comes across in the film at all and it's something that would be really easy for them to show yeah I i think there were a couple of scenes where they they kind of are trying to point towards that and it was at the very beginning when he hits the ball so far and it breaks like that that shop window and then later on he hits a ball and like breaks another window at college and they're like well you it's impossible for it to have been hit from that far but i don't think uh, i think that's nodding in that direction but i agree with you that that's not what they're really trying to establish if that makes sense yeah i think they maybe were trying to establish it they just didn't do it particularly yeah. well and i'm guessing some of it is just like i mean not very many people can hit a baseball that Far, So it would have been really hard for them to get a continuous shot of a baseball going that far. Like, I don't even really know how they would have done it at that time. And so then you're sort of just in this, like, world where they probably would have had to do some campy, like, zoom in on the ball, follow shots to try and give, try and give that impression if you wanted to do it if you wanted to show it rather than have a character exclaim about how far the ball went. But if you can't figure out how to do it while filming it, you could at least have someone say the sports writer. Yeah. Yeah, Just say it. Yeah. And that definitely comes across. And on these same notes, I just felt like I didn't see any baseball in this movie. And so, yeah, like I didn't really get to see him play or do much of it. And I was wondering as I was watching, how much of this comes down to that they were wanting to focus on his life? How much of it comes down to that if you were going to see it, you just knew he was good. So, like, why did you need the film to explain that? And then how much of it came down to just the technology of the time period? And I think it's an interaction of those things. Yeah, I agree. So, and as a historical document looking back, it's like people aren't going to know he's that good. And you, you need to clarify this and, like, make it stand out. And, you know, there were people at the time period that weren't baseball players like, you know, Gary Cooper. Uh, that, you that yeah. you know, they needed some frame of reference for how good he was. So I, I this is a criticism I 100% stand behind. But I think I kind of get why they made the decisions that they made. And I don't know that they had the skill to know that they needed to do that better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally agree. And I went back and forth between whether to put this in the beginning section or to put this in the in the post spoiler section because I 
but I, I eventually decided to put it here because I kind of think knowing how, how good he was makes the film a little bit worse of a watch because it really was unmooring to me to be like, wait, he's really good. I don't understand why this other <laughs> baseball writer keeps like poo-pooing him. This is so, so strange. That, that, that part was so strange where, you know, the competition between these two sports writers, he's like, well, I don't know about that Lou Gehrig. He seems like a loser. And the other guy's like, no, you're going to be wrong. So... <laughs> <laughs> I I by the end I love that little rivalry that they had going between them. I was like, okay, I get what's going on here, but it was so strange to me that that you know they played that storyline up so much. And then the only other thing that I wanted to mention, and I guess they probably just didn't really know how quite how big a deal this was at the time, but I wanted to mention it because it is a really big deal. There's passing reference made in the film that he won the triple crown. I'm guessing you don't know what a Triple Crown winner is in baseball. I don't. You're going to have to tell me. I will. So a Triple Crown winner is someone who leads the league in a single calendar year in, (laughs) at the time the phrase was coined, the three main stats. So that's batting average. And apologies if this is rudimentary, but batting average is your number of at, the number of hits you get divided by your number of at-bats. So if you get three hits in 12 plate appearances, then your batting average is 250. So lead the league in batting average, home runs. I think home runs is pretty self-explanatory. And then RBIs, runs batted in. And the so do you have any sense how many players have won the Triple Crown in baseball history? Uh, I don't, but I'm guessing it's not a lot. And so I'm going to say like uh, 15. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's 14. <laughs> so good. It So... As baseball players have sort of become more specialized and uh, home run hitters are not necessarily the same hitters who are good at getting a lot of hits, so that it's not very common for someone to lead the league in home runs and batting average. It has become a lot less common, uh, but 14 different people, and some, some of those players did it multiple times. Ted Williams did it multiple times, but it's still not a lot of people who were able to do it. So it would have been nice if... Did you even notice that they mentioned he won the Triple Crown? <laughs> no, I didn't notice. Yeah, so. it, it would have been nice if it, if it had been highlighted. And sorry that this is turning into the Zach Quizzes Mad About Baseball. <laughs> no, I, I'm loving it, so hopefully everybody else loves it. Yeah, that that's all I really wanted to say in this segment. We can move on and, and talk about some of the scenes. Uh, the first thing that we have is, is yours. Yeah, so the first thing, scene that we wanted to talk about is... So there's this moment where he, they're getting ready for the World Series. I can't remember who they're playing against, but... They're playing against the Cardinals. Okay. They're playing... The, oh, yeah, the Cardinals. So so they're playing against the Cardinals, and they go to visit this hospital. And there is a kid that is in the hospital. It's not clear what he is sick with, but he is unable to walk, and he's in the hospital bed. And Babe Ruth goes up to him, and the whole team is there, and he's very excited for Babe Ruth to be there. Sign, uh, Babe Ruth signs his baseball, and he says, I promise I'm going to hit you a home run. Uh, and so it's very exciting, and the sports writer is here, there and hears it, and they all publish it. And it's the, the rival sports writer gets the scoop that Babe Ruth promises mm-hmm. to hit him a home run. Then all the players leave afterwards, and Lou Gehrig goes up and talks to the kid, and he's like, you know... 
if you try hard enough and if you if you work at it, you'll be able to you'll be able to walk again. And you can do anything that you put your mind to, I think is he basically says that. Anything if you try hard enough is what he says. And the kid's like, well, can you hit a home run for me? And he's like, uh, that's hard to do. And he's like, well, if you try hard enough. Um, and he's like, okay, I'll hit a home run for you. And he's like, can you hit two? Uh, so, uh, um, he's like, you, you said if you try hard enough, you can do anything. He's like, okay, I promise to do two. And this sport, the sports writer overhears this. But it's just Lou Gehrig and the kid. And he promises to hit him two home runs. And then it, you know, later on shows us the World Series game where they're playing and Babe Ruth hits the first home run. And, you know, it's uh, it's great. And then they find out that Lou Gehrig has promised this these two home runs and he hits one pretty quickly. And then he's he's like trying so hard to hit that second home run. And he's it seems like he's pressing really hard, like trying too hard to hit the second home run mm-hmm. for the kid and kind of not batting as well as he should. And he gets uh, the scene where he's there and they, they decide they're going to walk him and they throw the three balls and they're just, they're just going to walk him. And he decides he's going to swing at the bat, the balls because he promised to hit the home run. And then he eventually hits it and knocks it out of the park. I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting scene. I have a lot of thoughts about this one, but I'm curious what your, your thoughts are here. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I will. So I will say the baseball of this, I found extremely engrossing. Like I was just like, oh, I love baseball. I miss it so much. And I got a little bit of chills when he hit that home run for the kid. And the watching them listening on the radio, that's probably the part that like was most affecting to me because I have done that. Like I remember sitting in my room and like playing with my yo-yo and just listening to those words and just hanging on every single word and hoping that it would happen and going absolutely crazy when the good thing happened. And I have memories <laughs> of like throwing my yo-yo on the floor when uh, whatever we gave up a hit or um, were unable to get the hit in the crucial time. And so I like... Yeah, that that was very moving and affecting. Yeah, me. that one was effective for me as well. It's uh, for for me it's the best sports moment of the of the film. It's one of the only sports <laughs> moments in the film. Yeah, it wasn't a high bar to clear. But it's it's a good one though. Like I think that as a sports moment holds up against a lot of other sports films nowadays. And you're just like the pathos of that moment. And the other thing is like they didn't need the run. You know, like, I don't know. It's just, I think they did. Oh, they did need the run. I think it was tied. Yeah. Okay. Because they said that it was supposed to be his last at-bat in this world series. Yeah, the last at-bat in this world series. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's a, like, it it might not be the statistically best choice for him to make. Because if he strikes out, that's pretty bad for, for their ability to win the game. Well... Yes, obviously that. But there, so there's some other weird stuff going on here, which is they make a pretty big deal. Eleanor says to him that it's his first World Series. 
Why don't you go ahead and guess whether or not the Yankees won their first World Series that Lou Gehrig played in? I'm going to guess... No, I feel trapped. I'm going to guess yes. No, they don't. They don't. Oh, jeez. No, they lost, they lost to the Cardinals. Oh, jeez. <laughs> not only that, how many home runs do you think Lou Gehrig hit in his first World oh, Series? Oh, no. It's going to be less than two? Did he just do one? He had zero. Zero. He didn't hit oh any my home gosh. Runs in his first World Series. <laughs> so it's just completely fabricated. This whole thing. The yeah, it's all fabricated. It's all made up. Oh my god. And so they did win the World Series the following year. I think he also didn't hit any home runs in that World Series. There is a game that this is sort of modeled after. I was able to find from looking in the box scores where he did hit two home runs and the last one mattered. But Babe Ruth didn't hit any home runs in that game. Huh. So, the, the, yeah, this, this whole story is, is pretty fabricated. And I'm guessing you didn't bump on this, but I definitely <laughs> yeah. did, which was they're playing this game in St. Louis. And I have no idea why that kid would be a Yankees fan. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. So that was all my baseball takeaways from the scene. I'm guessing you have a lot of other things that you wanted to talk about. So my, my, this scene worked on me in the pathos as I watched it. It worked as a film moment, but the promising this kid that if he tries hard enough, he can walk again. And the message that that sends to somebody that's watching this film, I just find really harmful and ableist. And yeah, yeah, so I I have an issue with that. You know, you could frame this story in a different way where it says, you know, maybe you'll never be able to do it again. But just because you might not be able to and just because it's hard doesn't mean that you can't try and you can't achieve something something along those lines and then he's like okay well can you try to hit two home runs and then i would have been on board for it but he just says you'll be able to walk again if you try hard enough i bumped up pretty hard against that because you know you can't just try your way out of a disability yeah. So, yeah, that that's the biggest thing i bumped up against on this one so the only thing i would say to potentially counter that and i don't i don't think this was i don't think this was their intent but i do think you can potentially read the movie this way or take it take it take from it this way which is this idea that lou gehrig is trying to impart is exactly what does not happen to him at the end of the movie right and he like he is trying so hard to be able to be the person that he was and ignore the fact that his body is failing him and he cannot. And eventually, in spite of that, he still gives this final speech, this luckiest man alive speech. And I I don't think they thought it through that far because I, I agree I with think there you. would be a stronger yeah. point of view if they had. But I think you can at least take that part of the movie. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I had kind of the same thought when I got to the end because the film itself is actually a celebration of somebody who had a disability. And it's a celebration of him in like the most 
the most disability affirming way, one of the most disability affirming ways that I can imagine where he talks about how like he's going to die from this thing and he can't play baseball anymore. And it would be really easy to look at this from an ableist perspective and just think your life is over. But he has the exact opposite reaction. We'll get to the speech and everything. But so that contrast, I agree with you, comes is pretty i found that kind of impactful especially when the kid shows up at the end when he's going to give that speech and that kid's like look i was able to i i did what you said and i can walk i i found that pretty useful but in the moment i really struggled with that scene and as you said i don't think that they intended it to be read in that way so i don't know it, it caused me some issues as i was watching it yeah that makes sense but the pathos of the scene is really, really good still. <laughs> yeah, I, I I, mean, I, honestly, I didn't bump on it until you were describing the scene right now because I, uh, <laughs> I was too caught up in the baseball. Of course, yeah. Well, and also my brain was going over time, like, on the factual inaccuracies, which sure. I sort of knew, like, it's not like I knew all this stuff cold about Lou Gehrig's first postseason, but like my spidey sense was going off that like yeah. this is very strange, especially to have happened in his first World Series and and all of Makes that. Makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about the next scene, which is th- this was another scene that I liked a lot. This is probably probably was my second favorite scene in the film, which was so this is. 10 10 weeks after they got married and the sports writer who has been championing our buddy Lou for for the entire film drives to the house of his wife which a little unclear on why he went there he seemed to just go over there all the time <laughs> like he made really good friends with this sports sports writer yeah, and so he, he goes over there and Lou Gehrig isn't there. And it's really, it's a pretty heavy-handed setup where it's, they're leading you down this path of, you know, baseball players at the time were known to be womanizers and carousers and no good nicks. And so it's really trying to lead you down this road of thinking that he's, uh, cheating on his cheating on his wife cheating on Eleanor and you know they do this whole back and forth where he's like I'm sure he'll be home and she's like no I know where he is and he says well still you know only only one time late over 10 weeks a lot of wives have it a lot worse and she says no this is the fourth time and he's like oh well I'm sure it's not bad I'm sure it's not what you think and she says no it's exactly what I think I'll show you and then they get in the car and you have this driving scene. And, you know, I'm none of this really worked on me in the sense that I thought there was really any chance they were going to walk in on <laughs> Lou with some other woman. But it did work on me in the sense that I was like bought into the sports writer's horror and his worry about it and i i thought it was really nice but they do then pull up and it turns out he's coaching a, or umpiring a little league baseball yeah. game and i thought this was a really nice moment and the as you said before the pathos of the of the scene worked on me really well and i did do 
you know, it's it's pretty hard to tell for sure. I don't know. I don't know how how much appetite there would be to write a telling all the dark secrets biography of Lou Gehrig, but I wasn't really able to find a lot of I wasn't able to find any bad stuff really on him. Like the no. biography or at least the main biography that's written on him really does seem to say that whereas a lot of baseball players were drinking and had a woman in every town, like Lou Gehrig was not. He was someone who, you know, <laughs> liked to go home early and Spend- hang out with his mom. And <laughs> his mom and his wife, was, yeah. So. Yeah, was generally an introvert. You know, I, I have no idea if that means he never cheated on her, that, like, it's just... There, there's no way for us to know those things, but it does seem that, like, by all accounts, he was considered to be a good guy, and at the very least, was not as bad a guy as the majority of the people that he was playing with. Yeah, it's a you know, my reaction to this was particularly funny because mm-hmm. before the film started. We're like, I just introduced it to my parents and I was like, yeah, it's about Luke Gehrig. And my dad was convinced that he was like a terrible person, that, oh, he, that really? he did that kind of thing. And I was like, no, I didn't say any of that like when I read about it. And so we had kind of like not an argument, but kind of like a little uh, argument about about Luke Gehrig. And I was like, I don't think so. I think I would have popped up something because i didn't research too heavily into lou gehrig beforehand but you know i was like lou gehrig and looked up and just saw some stuff about him and nothing like that popped up but he was dead set that he was like yeah no he was like a womanizer and all this stuff and i was like oh no and then when this scene came on i was like i'm gonna have to eat crow because my dad was right and so because of oh, that so it, it worked, it worked so hard i wouldn't have without this little disagreement we had beforehand but because of that i bought in so hard i was so nervous during the scene and i was like oh my gosh what's it gonna be because at this point i was invested i was like oh no he's gonna be right i'm gonna be wrong and all this stuff and then when it showed him playing the uh or umpiring the game i was just so relieved for completely outside the movie reasons. Wow! Uh, so your dad, your dad was the hero of your watching experience. That's so yeah. Good. It, was, it was. This is one of the reasons why you know it was so much more fun to watch it with them. And uh, one of our you know things with Streama is that like the individual experience that you have watching a film shapes your response to it so much. And this is such a clear example of yeah. that. Yeah, I, I I liked this this scene a lot. It was good. It's good. Do you have anything else you want to say about this, or should we move on to the next scene we have? Let's move on to the next one. This one's a really complex scene, and it is the yeah. scene where uh, Lugar receives the diagnosis that they don't say what it is, but he finds out that he has amyotrophic lateral scler- sclerosis, ALS, and he goes well, no one knew what it was at that right. time, so it's not like they were going to say in the movie you have Lou Gehrig's disease. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but he goes in and he's meeting with the doctor, and I found this scene so fascinating. So he they go in. He goes with that sports writer again. So he's yeah. made such close friends of this reporter apparently that this reporter goes with him to the doctor to receive his diagnosis. But you know, whatever. That's 
So <laughs> That's strange. so strange. Yeah. So he goes to the doctor with this sports writer, uh, this reporter, and he gets the news from the doctor. At first, the doctor says, you know, he tries to to break the news to him very gently and honestly is not even being forthright with him. He says, well, tell me how bad it's going to be. Am I going to have to stop playing baseball? And he's like, well, you know, there's a lot more tests that we have to do and who really knows, but you, know, you might have to stop playing baseball. Uh, he then asks him, doctor, just tell it to me straight. Is this three strikes? He says, yes, it's three, three strikes. And he finds out that he only has a little while to live left. And then I'm a man who likes to know what my batting average I wanna know, is. I'm a guy who likes to know what my batting average is. Yes, that worked on me too, by the way. So then his wife comes and they basically agree to keep it a secret from her. And yeah. uh, let me tell you, the way my stomach was churning at that, I was like, oh my gosh, really? I was I did not like that decision. I was like, is this based on real life? Like, what are they doing here? And then she comes in and Lou goes to get more tests and she's talking to the reporter and she figures it out, which I was really glad they had her figure it out. And she just she know she knew that something was wrong and she can tell she says that she knew the moment she saw all their faces that what the die you know, that he was going to die. And then she says that she's not going to tell him that she knows, but it, it's it was an interesting scene, and I think it's cleverly written the way it's put together. But there's also just I had some difficulty watching it because I was really worried about whether he was going to tell his wife about this disease or not. So, what are your thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah, and then it, yeah. Yeah, I had basically the same reaction where it was like, oh, that's horrible. But then as soon as she finds out, then it sort of switched into becoming this weirdly like really romantic thing where they both knew this horrible thing, but they loved each other too much to want to hurt the other one to tell them, you know. And so it was kind of nice, like only really had those like 30 to 45 seconds of dread which was kind of weird. What I don't know if you read up on this, but this is basically the exact opposite of what really happened. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. I I assume yeah, so. so. I didn't read up on this, but I was like, oh, he, she had to have known in real life. I just couldn't believe that this is what actually happened. Well, so not only did she know, she knew before he did. Oh. It was very common at the time for them not to tell patients how dire their diagnosis was. So he didn't find out for a while how how bad it was for him, but she did know. Wow. Okay, yeah, that just reframes the entire, like, that reframes everything for me. That's interesting. I did know that at the time period, it was very common to hide diagnoses from patients. And so I figured that was what was kind of going on here from the way they were setting up the scene. But, like, the way that doctors historically have done that kind of thing, I find so incredibly unethical that it really was (laughs) really was disturbing me a lot as the scene was going on but that makes a lot of sense that they would have shared the information with her first and then it would have been broken to him later based on the practices at the time period yeah and i guess i understand even if like through a modern lens it's it's pretty hard to like stomach the decision i understand why they did it because i think they 
you get this scene of him like taking it in and being stronger and right it, like it just adds too much time to the movie to do it the other way and you still get to see that scene so I, I think I like understand why they made the decision even if if they had made this film now they would not have solved it in this way i don't think yeah but i think they would have gone for the same kind of emotions which the key like the most important part of the scene is that lou gehrig faces the diagnosis head on right he wants he wants to know what his batting average is he wants to know if it's three strikes he's not afraid of dying he doesn't break down in this and he faces it with such confidence and like joy (laughs) Because he's just joking immediately afterwards, and um, I think it's not that it's not sad. It is sad, and he's sad, but he's responding to the sadness in... Honestly, I think it's a really healthy way, the way that he approaches it. And so that's the most important part of the scene, and I'm glad they got that across. But yeah, it it definitely was a scene that was causing me a bit of panic as I watched it. Now, remind me, I already forgot from when we from an hour and a half ago did you you knew that we were barreling towards this diagnosis yeah for sure it's a it's i i knew that for sure and i well okay yeah i I was pretty sure but on top of it i was like they introduce it so late in the film it's really late they it's and so like i was kind of (laughs) my mom did not know that that's what was coming up. Uh, oh, yeah. Really? My mom didn't know, and my dad had heard of Lou Gehrig's disease, so he he knew that that was coming up. Um, yeah. But yeah, my mom didn't realize what was going on until it happened, and then she's like, "Oh wait, Lou Gehrig's disease," and she figured it out. But it was in like right after this scene, or right after he starts to get sick, that she figured it out. But it comes so late in the film, and it really transforms everything else that came before it. I think if you were making the film nowadays the structure of the film would be dramatically different because you would introduce this a lot sooner. I mean, you probably, like, you maybe even would open with yeah. it and then flash back and spend a lot less time with a fraternity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I start with an inmate arrest at him at the doctor's office waiting for a diagnosis and then go back to yeah. all the other stuff. Which, honestly, I think would probably make for a better viewing experience if you did it in that way. But it's still interesting to see the structure of a film in the time period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything else you want to say about this That's scene? Or should we move on to our, our last one? All right, so our last scene here, which we sort of already talked about, came up when we were talking about this, uh, talking about our first scene. Tonight is the scene where he's giving his famous speech at Yankee Stadium, his uh, luckiest man on the face of the earth. This is an exceptionally famous sports moment. I don't know... Were you aware of this speech before watching this movie? Yeah, I was aware of this speech beforehand. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it has transcended out of out. Not of only was I aware time. of the speech, but I've heard the speech before on more than one occasion. Yeah, so this the speech is a lot longer than this, but there is not a full recording of the speech. And one of the things that struck me watching this, I mean, first of all, Gary Cooper does a great job. <laughs> I, I was like, yeah. did they use real footage for this? But the it, it was very affecting to me how the the echo that happened throughout the stadium. Oh, yeah, for me which too. Is, That's the same thing for me. 
yeah, it, it's super realistic. And I was like, wow, that is a great detail. And then it wasn't until I went and looked up the the video, the video that exists or the recording that exists now. And it was like, oh, it's the exact same echo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I was like, oh, they they were just really trying to capture this moment, really trying to get it as as good as they possibly could. And I, th- I think it's one of those moments that makes the movie that has given it the legs that it has had that allows it to continue on because it does let you see this moment and it does man it's a really nice moment when he walks into the dugout and i i kind of was expecting like the movie was going to end on his deathbed and it was going to be really horrible but instead it ended on this moment of the speech and him walking into the dugout and it it does kind of reframe baseball as being like more important to him than his wife, um, <laughs> a little bit, which yeah. I bumped on, which I bumped on a little bit, but not enough that it that it ruined the emotional impact of of the moment. For well, me. and the symbolism of a player walking off the field yeah. is such great symbolism. I find it really like I choked up a bit on that on this scene and basically everything that happens in the film before this scene is like an okay movie for the time period. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. this scene and the whole way it's shot and just everything in it is like a masterpiece of cinematography. It's a masterpiece of film and it is remarkable. Like it holds up compared to films now. This entire scene and the way it's put together like you said with the I found it really moving the way that you have the echo coming in from the stadium and this, I think it's such an incredible decision to end with him walking off into the dugout. It's a great, like that's a, that's a masterful decision to end the film with, in my opinion. So yeah, this, this, this scene really got me. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a ton else to say about it because we, we talked about it. We talked about the, efficacy of you know staring down death and calling yourself lucky but it so i don't i don't have a ton else to say on it but so i have only two other things to say one of them's like a small uh movie making thing which is that they took mm-hmm. the bits of the speech and they swapped them around in reverse order oh. so it, in the actual speech he says at the beginning i consider myself the luckiest man in the world and then he goes on how could you not consider yourself the luckiest man in the world when you get to work with these people and have this you know you have your parents and you have your wife and all of those things and does it but in the movie they put the i am the luckiest man in the world at the end of it which i think is really good movie making because it lands on that last part and it gives it so much more weight and so much more impact so I'm I think that yeah. was really a really smart movie making decision. And then the other thing is just the thing that was going on in my head is the idea of being like you've gotten your orders and you're shipping out to go to World War II and you're sitting and watching this film and watching Lou Gehrig oh, say yeah. like Jeez. facing death in the face and saying, "You know what? It's I'm the luckiest man in the world for for this and then walking off into the dugout." I can only imagine that that was very affecting for people at the time period. And so it makes sense to me. Yeah, I hadn't even put that together. Yeah, it makes sense to me that it was nominated for so many Oscars and that it had such a big impact on people because of that context 
of the film. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I I, I love that. I wish <laughs> I wish I had thought about it while I was watching. So that's all I've got to say about that one, though. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and move into cleanup here. I think I've got a lot of cleanup stuff for stuff that I well maybe not a lot, but the majority of it is stuff that. I bumped on or didn't love as much, but there was one moment that I wanted to point out that I really, really liked, which was the first moment when he meets Eleanor, Mm -hmm. when he meets his wife, his future wife. And I can't remember exactly what the turn of phrase is. I think it's something. No, it's something about splinters. Oh, that, um, that he, he says like, I'm tired of, getting splinters or whatever it, it's a little more coded than that and he goes to try and explain it to her what it is and she snaps back and says i know what it is it means you're getting splinters from sitting on the bench for so oh, long oh yes that scene i was really surprised by this moment i did not expect her to subvert his mansplaining to in from a movie that was 80 years old. I, I liked that quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, that was good. That was a good scene. Oh my gosh. They they were... <laughs> I She was so good. They were, yeah, they were great together. together yeah. So And that scene is really good. I agree. I, I fell for him. I was like... Even though their kisses were pretty passion, passionate. Their kisses were not good. But besides no. the kissing, the, the, the chemistry was pretty good. Yeah. I don't know. So... What do you have? Um, okay, so... <laughs> along... Th- uh, with the kissing and this segue, one of the things that I discovered in researching this film is Gary Cooper dated Lupe Velez for a long time, and she is a very famous uh, Mexican actress and it girl from the time period. And she is on the record of mm-hmm. saying that Gary Cooper has the biggest organ in Hollywood, um, is the quote. And so, you know, I thought that was important context mm. for everyone to know about this film. Interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder what, what she's referring to. It's a little hard to figure yeah. out. Could be many things. Yes, definitely. But so. maybe we'll leave it up to the listener to, to interpret. The The next thing I had was they clearly had decided wow, I wonder what a good way would be for us to show that Lou Gehrig is starting to lose motor function. And for some reason, the decision that they went with was Lou, Gehrig, and Eleanor just love to wrestle. They just love to pin each other on the floor in a way that, honestly, I found like, pretty frightening all of the times that they did it Ah, that was so weird and it was so clearly a movie construction that i i know it was 80 years ago but i'm just like (laughs) there had to have been better options i I just yeah (laughs) i agree that that part was so weird and like i don't know they just the the acting that was in it was it just felt so off. I don't know. That that was a very strange scene. Well, that one and the one on the beach where they set it up. And it's like, it really would have been just better if you had just like had the bat fall out of his hands while he was at the plate. Yes. You know? And this is another <laughs> thing that, that like, happen. I just wanted more baseball from my biggest criticism of the entire movie is I just want more baseball. Um, and yeah. showing that 
showing this happen with the baseball, like on the field, like missing a catch that he should have missed or something like that would have gone so much more, so much farther with me. Yeah, absolutely. What else do you Yeah, got? so I had mentioned this earlier, but there is a scene in this film where all of the players are on a train and there's a black waiter that comes in. And this scene was just really, like, just, it's terrible. And they, so the black waiter comes in and they just racially harass him and, like, uh, they, all of them are, like, hitting him or picking on him or trying to knock things out of his hands. Uh, and... It doesn't, it doesn't seem like acting to me when I watched it. It seems to me like they got someone, like a waiter, in. And were like, hey, we're going to do this. Uh, come on and do this. And then they just were basically assaulting him. And he was trying to get off the scene. And this scene made me really uncomfortable. And the, the racism and the way that it's portrayed so casually, I found pretty disturbing and upsetting in that part of the film. And I had a hard time dealing with that throughout the rest of the film. And then there's a couple of other times where some characters pop up and are black and each time it's showing them in kind of demeaning situations and portraying them most of the time as being less intelligent than the white people that are in the scenes with them. And so that's my other biggest criticism of the film. It's just a really big problem. It, it, it's just as bad. Yeah, and there, the, not that it would be better if there were a dramatic reason for these moments, yeah. but it definitely feels worse because they don't really add anything. It's just like, it's all like, I, I think they might supposed to be there for comedic relief. It seems like it to me. Yeah, which, I, I mean, it, yeah, the, it doesn't work now, but it's. It's the opposite of not working now because instead it's like horrific. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, our, our rom-com turned into a horror movie all of a sudden. Yeah, and the one thing that I was, the one like saving grace for me is that Lou Gehrig is not participating in those things when they happen. He's... Yeah. Right, That it, it could have been because it, the one with the waiter is in the scene where he sort of gets caught up in all of the hijinks even though like he doesn't want to and he gets peer pressured right. into it. And so there's definitely a moment for it to be like, all these players were racist, but not Lou Gehrig, but that's just, they just weren't even thinking about that, yeah. you know, yeah. like, and even if they had, I mean, Lou Gehrig's a guy from a certain time. He probably was. Yeah, racist. I assume so. <laughs> as good a guy as he probably was. Yeah. I assume he was racist. It's a, if, so. if he was not, you know, then it would be nice to see some evidence of that. But barring any, I'm assuming that he was. But yeah, yeah these scenes are horrific and they're inexcusable and they're problematic in so many ways. And so that's going to take people out of the film. And if you've made it this far in the discussion, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's really frustrating that they're there. Yeah. My next thing is uh, another thing that I did not like doesn't have quite the same undertones but it it is a thing that really bothers me and i think it is a trope that continues today in some cases not as bad as this and it's the mom getting upset that her boy her baby boy has found another yeah. woman and this yeah. is it, it hits ahead like after they get married and she's really trying to 
take control. And I think they actually deal with the fallout of it pretty well because they put it on Lou to stand up to his mom. But it really continues for a long time. And I just don't like it. Yeah, I didn't like that at all. It didn't work for me. I didn't, you know, I just didn't like those scenes. I agree with you. The way that it finally comes to a culmination I thought was satisfying. But leading up to that, I'm just like, can we just end this storyline? It's boring and it's problematic and I don't like it. So, for sure. Dislike. Uh, Uh, I have one more And I've got two more. Okay, Uh, great. So, no... uh, (laughs) The one of the things that's one of the most interesting parts of this film to me is that they brought back so many of Lou Gehrig's teammates to actually play yeah. themselves in the film, including Babe Ruth. And so, you know, that's one reason to watch this is that you get to see Babe Ruth, like actual Babe Ruth on scene, multiple scenes, like center of the camera. That was really interesting to me. Um, and you have Babe Ruth, you have Mark Koenig, you have. I can't read my own writing here. You have Robert Musil and you have Bill something that I can't read. Uh, maybe you can correct me on this. Oh, I don't know. I don't have it up. It, most people would know Robert as Bob. Yeah, Bob Musil. Uh, and then Bill Stern, yeah. the legendary sportcaster. And they all play themselves in this film. But what's even more interesting is Babe Ruth had to lose like 70 pounds for this film. Because... Uh, <laughs> They wanted him to look good, so they put him on a strict diet and regimen for months before shooting his parts. And I just find it interesting. What was what was kind of wild? I don't know if like people are gonna lambast me for this. I thought Babe Ruth was really good. Yeah, he was. He was really. I he was he a very believable well. actor. Yeah. He he played himself well. So okay, yeah, he was good on good. screen. I'm glad you don't disagree with me. I was. I, I thought I was gonna be I thought I was gonna be cringing, but I thought he I thought he did a good well, job. Well, when I saw that beforehand, before watching it, that they were gonna be in it, I was like, oh, we're gonna have to suffer through some bad acting from Babe Ruth, but it'd be really cool to see him. But no, he was good on screen. You know, I don't know that Babe Ruth was is as admiral of a guy, but but he's no. he's good on screen, and I enjoyed that. It was good. The last thing I have, so the music for this movie is really interesting. It's almost exclusively different arrangements of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And also uh, Irving Berlin song, Always, which the Irving Berlin is, you know, one of the big six composers from, from this time period, one of the most influential Tin Pan Alley composers and always was a song that he had written for his wife for his wedding and i thought it was something that was very effective in this movie yes the the use of this song and since we do get to talk about irving berlin i would be remiss if i didn't mention my favorite irving berlin anecdote which is irving berlin did not read or write music which uh not common for composers but not uncommon for composers additionally though irving berlin didn't really play piano either irving berlin could only play piano in one key which uh he could play in f sharp or g flat and the reason he plays in that key is because he just played on all the black notes (laughs) and that's sort of how he figured out his his melodies and in fact it was he was 
so set in his ways that he got at the time this was really like big technology he got a transposing piano where it would like a gear shift would move the hammers so that they hit different strings so that he could play in the one key that he knew how to play in and uh (laughs) and get it in the key that he wanted to sing that the is song amazing in. especially since like so many of his songs are so iconic mm-hmm. so yeah. wow that's amazing that's really good so my last cleanup there was a short film that played at the beginning of this film um and it was they it was required contractually to play this short film at the beginning of it and it was like a big part of the the experience and i bet you can't guess it i'm gonna give you just a a try to even like guess what you think it might be but with this short film but i don't think you're gonna get it uh i mean all i could guess is like war propaganda it is not it is a disney short film it is how to play baseball with goofy Oh, wow. Yeah, and so so you would go in and sit down, and they would do some, like, news and stuff before the film start. This was the tradition. You'd, uh, you'd sit down, yeah. they'd play some newsreels and all of those things, but then when the movie started, they played a Disney short film, Goofy's How to Play Baseball, which, you know, everybody should go watch. It's eight minutes long. Totally worth it. And that plays right before the movie begins. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll put a link in the in the show notes. So that's it for me. Um, the only, we didn't I mentioned it in passing, but the only last thing I want to say is, I really think they did not. That like, I'll find a nicer way of putting it. It it is clear how old this movie is and how new it was to both the biopic and sports genre because the opening half hour of this movie basically everything until he gets signed with the yankees is just hard to watch it it is clear that they're floundering and don't like they're like biographies have to start at the beginning of someone's life so here's how we're going to try and figure out how to do it because it does not really support the The first 30 to 45 minutes of this movie is a real slog yeah yeah and we didn't talk about any of those scenes because we didn't like them but we would be remiss if we didn't mention that for sure it's a yeah you know we didn't spend a lot of time talking about his time in the fraternity or the dance at the fraternity and Mm -hmm. or you know getting bullied at the fraternity there was so much fraternity so yeah just cut it just all of it you don't yeah you you, you keep that scene at the beginning where he's playing baseball as a kid and then, like, jump up to him getting signed by the Yankees. We're good. I don't need much more than that. Yeah. So, I thought no one knowing who Babe Ruth was when he had the rookie card was pretty. <laughs> that funny was good. Though. Yeah. I, I I bet that would have been uproarious laughter. I, I bet it would. Yeah. Uh, people must have about died from that. So, uh, do you have anything else, or should we move into let's closing? close? All right, so that will do it for this week. As always, if you want to give us feedback, we would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us uh, longer form thoughts, you can do so at podcast stream it, and that link will be in the show notes. And so, yeah, let us know how you how you like the new format of the show, and let us know if you have any requests for any 
way you'd like us to sort of tweak the format of the show in the future or movies that you'd like us to cover or types of movies that you'd like us to cover if there are any particular holes in in what we've done so far. Uh, We are going to cover one of those holes next week. We're talking about High Noon. We're going to be seeing what I imagine is a very different side of Gary Cooper. And the one of the things we thought we would do, if we could, this when we're when we're picking movies is try and find movies that end in X2 so that it's sort of the the anniversary is in a round number. So we got the 80 year anniversary of this one and then 70 year anniversary of High Noon. And, you know, we're not going to tie ourselves in knots to try and do that. But if it's a movie we're interested in, it's kind of fun. And and then I don't have to do math while we're recording the podcast, which... I'm very excited uh, for High Noon uh, because better. it is the comparison between the Pride of the Yankees and High Noon and the way they are on opposite sides of dramatically different changes in the movie industry. I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for that one as well. And of course, we do want to shout out and thank David Stewart, Estoriel, who is friend of the pod and beta listener and as I have mentioned before, is also helping us out with editing. So thanks a lot, David. You are making us sound a lot better. You're the best, David. And finally, do you have a closing question? I do. I'm excited for this one. Okay. If you could choose an athlete that does not currently have, like, a sports biopic or a good sports biopic about them, which athlete would you choose? Oh, oh, this is a good one. I was excited about this question. Man, there, there, I'm pausing for a while, but it's because there are so many that are going through my head. And so I think there, I'll do the two, I'll say two that I thought of, but I'm going to go with someone else. One is Barry Bonds. I think his career is fascinating. He just did not get elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame because he got blackballed for doing steroids in a way that I think is very unfair and really makes the Hall of Fame lose a lot of credibility in my eyes. I think there are Whatever. This isn't a Barry Bonds podcast. <laughs> I think that would be a very interesting film. Yeah, that sounds like a really good film. Ichiro, I'd see it. Ichiro is a childhood hero of mine. I don't really like the word hero. I don't know why I said hero, but he's someone that I loved watching play baseball. I think he is so interesting. He plays baseball in such a unique way, and he's also really funny. I think his film would be very interesting. Those would all be better films, I think, than my real answer, which is Felix Hernandez. And Felix Hernandez is my guy. He is the Mariner of all Mariners for me. He, the, I mean, the Mariners were so bad for so long. And through it all, Felix Hernandez was the best pitcher on the planet. And he chose to stay in Seattle. And I think he liked staying in Seattle. I think he liked the fact that he knew when he took the mound he was not going to get any run support. I think he thrived on the idea that he basically had to be perfect to win that game. And while all of us were feeling so bad for him that he would go out there and throw these like three hitters and give up one run and lose the game, I think he just viewed it as a challenge. And 
he had so many miles on his arm and then he just fell off a cliff and he's probably not going to make the Hall of Fame even though he has one of 22 perfect games thrown in baseball history and I love him so much. I loved being able to tune into baseball five days a week knowing we were going to get to watch or not five days a week, once every five days, knowing we were going to get to watch a legendary performance. And it bums me out that, like, I think all but the biggest baseball fans maybe don't even know who he is. You sold me. I want to see that movie now. I want to see all three of them, actually. So, yeah, Yeah. uh, I'm convinced. My answer for this one is down a little bit different path. Uh, I would want to see a biopic yeah. about Megan Rapino. Oh yeah, because I think it would be great. I just think it would be a great movie. Oh, I, that's a great answer. And you would get uh, some some co-starring with uh, my birthday buddy, living legend Sue Bird. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a. I think it would be a great movie. Hollywood, get on this, sign the rights, you know, get Megan Rapino and Sue Bird in there and make this happen because I think it would be a hit. I think it'd be a great movie. It's got to happen. It would be great. Here, here's the thing, though, is I think we're going to get that. Movie. Uh, I would not be surprised. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot higher chance of us getting that movie than there is of getting Well, there's so movie. much, like, interesting things that go into that because of all the drama that happened in the 2019 world cup especially with you know the president of the united states essentially like deciding that he was his she was his personal enemy um and i don't know i think it would be a fantastic movie yeah and all posts there was at that time sue bird wrote an article so the president hates my forking girlfriend And I, I'll put that link in the show notes because, ooh, yeah, I love it. it would be it would be a great great film. I definitely should have gone first with my question because my question is a lot more lighthearted. Okay. First of all, I guess two part question: How many baseball games have you been to? In uh, your life? I've actually been to a lot of baseball games because I played baseball, you know, a bit up until I was twelve years old. So, mm-hmm. and then afterwards, I have so. I played in the pep band at my school, so I went to a lot of uh, football games and basketball games, and surprisingly, our, we played a lot at baseball games. Not all of them, but you know, whenever there was a big games. So I have been to a lot of baseball games. Okay, Not as many me, as you. It's going to be a three-part question, I guess. How many? How many major league? Zero. Baseball games I've been to been zero to? major league baseball games. <gasps> no. Zero. Oh my goodness! Oh, we have to go to a game sometime. So yeah. Well, then I don't even know if my last—I don't even know if you have an answer to my last question. Because I was going to ask what your favorite food you'd had at a baseball game is. Yeah, I can't answer this. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, bummer. Well, I'm—I guess I'm glad I asked the first two questions. My answer to this one—I've been to a lot of baseball games i have not been to anywhere near as many baseball games as i think most people would imagine i have been to um because i probably i'm not sure that there's any year where i've gone to more than five baseball games in a single season but i've probably watched it's got to be in the thousands of baseball games 
I can confirm it's got to be in the thousands. So, <laughs> yeah, my favorite food at a baseball game, though, the obvious answer is a hot dog or a sausage. I prefer sausage, but that's actually not my favorite food. At Safeco, now T-Mobile in Seattle, out in the bullpen, they have these barbecue, I think they're pork, pulled pork barbecue sandwiches that are just, oh, they are so good. Food at baseball stadiums, except for Yankee Stadium, (laughs) has gotten so good. Uh, Pulled pork sandwiches are just like... I could die for those. So my, I can tell you what my answer would be. My answer would be pulled pork sandwiches because I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what else is at the game. That's going to be my favorite thing. Yeah. Oh, so good. And now I'm really excited for you. Next time you come to New York, we're going to. That a sounds great. I, I would be thrilled to go. I'd, I'd have a great time. So, yeah. All right. Well, we said we use it. You thought this was going to be I know, a short right? one, so... and you you did not know how much I was going to talk about baseball. But I let's known. wrap this puppy up, and we, hopefully, we'll be able to get it edited for. Uh, maybe we can get it under an hour fifty. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.